Brought to you by Bank of America, Merrill Lynch. With virtual reality, virtually everything will change. Discover opportunities in a transforming world. B of AML.com slash VR. Merrill Lynch, Pierce, Fenner & Smith, Incorporated. Welcome to the Bloomberg Surveillance Podcast. I'm Tom Keen with David Gura. Daily, we bring you insight from the best of economics, finance, investment, and international relations. Find Bloomberg Surveillance on Apple Podcasts, SoundCloud, Bloomberg.com, and of course, on the Bloomberg. Markets saw some yen weakening this morning as the Bank of Japan kept its monetary stimulus program unchanged. The Nikkei got a boost as a result, while the central bank also pushed back the projected timing for reaching its 2% inflation target for a sixth time. Well, for more, we're joined by Kathy Matsui, Goldman Sachs Japan Vice President and Chief Equity Strategist here in London. We still have Richard Turnell of BlackRock. Kathy, great to have you on the program. What do you make of the challenges for the BOJ? What is their number one question that investors want answered. Is it inflation or is it just simply, will Governor Kuroda stay on after his term ends in 2018? Well, I think the uh, top of mind question for many investors that we speak with is, uh, wh what is the kind of the end game for this so-called uh, yield curve control, quantitative easing framework, and asset purchase program. Of course, you mentioned uh, the other question, which is, will Kuroda stay on as central bank governor here post his uh, uh, expiration of uh, next April? Uh, but the number one question is, how much longer uh, can the Bank of Japan sustain uh, the current program? Uh, for what it's worth, our view is, uh, because they've set their inflation target quite high and, and ambitious at 2%, it is quite likely uh, that they will persist uh, with the current framework, uh, including both uh, yield curve control as well as the asset purchases that they are, are currently executing. Uh, having said that, we are also of the view that there are some signs of, uh, of inflation beginning to creep through, some green shoots, wages are beginning to pick up, inflation expectations are creeping a little bit higher. Uh, while not uh, the 2% that the Bank of Japan is aiming for, we are definitely going to start to see some uh, increasing signs of inflation, we think, in the next 6 to 12 months down the road. But, Kathy, by again delaying the time for hitting their price targets or their price goals, is the BOJ effectively acknowledging that they'll need to continue easing for many years to come? It would appear so. Um, and so we don't know exactly how long that will be. And again, a lot will ride on whether Kuroda stays or leaves post next spring. Uh, but for the time being, the fact that they did delay or postpone uh, the timeline for reaching their target inflation uh, level, uh, obviously the market is interpreting that as more for longer. Uh, and so I think we're seeing a divergence of central banks, uh, the Fed and the ECB on the one hand, uh, versus the Bank of Japan is probably going to continue this uh, quite aggressive stimulus program, uh, at least for the foreseeable future. Kathy, good morning. I want to bring up a chart here. Let's bring it up right now. This is Japan nominal GDP. We've got Robert Schiller with us in the next hour with his acclaimed work with uh, Professor Akerlof, Mr. Janet Yellen on uh, animal spirit. The animal spirit, Kathy, has evaporated. Nominal GDP, which was really on an abenomics friendly trend. Here's the U.S. hurdle rate of 4% nominal. 
It's failed. It's rolled over. How critical is it that nominal GDP has rolled over? Um, it's obviously, you know, su super critical because at the end of the day, I think corporate managers and Mrs. Watanabe mm. think in nominal terms as opposed to real terms, right? Uh, so clearly, you know, there has been an initial sort of jumpstart to getting the economy out of the slump, yes. getting uh, growth uh, to expand and all of that. Uh, but more needs to be done. And I think the concern of the markets is that the government currently in Japan may be distracted by other issues and needs to mm. refocus its attention on the economy, stimulating the economy, trying to get those animal spirits to yeah. uh, revive once again. Now, to be fair, the corporate sector is in completely fine shape. And we have record profits, record profit margins, exactly. record cash balances. So it's not as if there's no cash around, but you, you're putting your finger on the right point, which is where is the trigger? Where's the catalyst to get corporate managers to deploy that cash into the real economy through CapEx and other means uh, to lead to a virtuous uh, cycle? Uh, but again, uh, it's not as if everything is, is in deflation and back to five years ago, we are in a much better place than we were five years ago, but more needs to be done to make sure the cycle is sustained. I agree. Go, go back to this chart if you would. I want to do this on television like it's Facebook Live right now. You're going to see me make the sausage right now, which is the average 20-year line of nominal GDP. You can barely see it there. I'm going to make it a big, bright, ugly red for you. Nominal GDP over two decades in Japan, his flat line. So there you go. There's that red line right down by zero. I mean, is, is there any demand by society, Kathy, in Japan to jumpstart societal animal spirit? Or are they all doing this for Honda and Toyota? Well, I think, I think you have to think about uh, this in terms of uh, if, for example, if you look at the demographic, I call it the demographic divide, right? The older Japanese cohorts who are retired, no more, you know, uh, earned income, but they're trying to live off their savings. Frankly, for them, deflation is the best thing since sliced exactly. bread because deflation means they can stretch their savings, mm. right? Yes. Versus those that are not retired, that are younger, that are seeing their wages stagnant or falling. So it's been this real battle between these two cohorts. Uh, and we had seen, of course, the dominant, the, the former group really winning the game. But now the other group is now beginning to raise its voices and say, look, this is not good for us. It's not good for posterity. We really need to change the dynamic right. here. So again, I think you're painting a picture that is exactly Exactly why Abenomics came came through, right? It's exactly why the society said enough is enough. Uh, we made the sort of the retired community ha happy for a while, but this is really terrible for our future. Again, the verdict is still out whether this is going to be sustainable and successful sufficiently. But at least I think they've uh, come to recognize as a society that we right. can't just you know sort of cater to that former and group it, any it, longer. It, 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 Kenneth Rogoff, as I mentioned, here in our Bloomberg 1130 studios uh, in New York. Great to have you. A pleasure to be here, David. Let me start by asking you uh, sort of to, to respond to what we're seeing here out of Brussels, the, the, the beginnings of these negotiations between the, the EU and, and the UK, obviously early stages here uh, yet. But in terms of what's, what the flashpoints are, what the big issues are, uh, how do you respond to, to what we're hearing here about sort of uh, the issue of citizens' rights uh, in the UK and how big an issue that's going to be going forward? I don't even know where to start. I, I, would, I would say that uh, 
the sort of Damocles is hanging over the UK here with this Brexit. They haven't begun to feel the effects, particularly the financial sector, if they have to move 20% of the financial sector uh, out of London, it's going to be very, very painful for the UK economy. I, I think they'll come to some kind of reasonable agreement on citizenship and citizens' rights. But I don't know, Theresa May had this disastrous election. Uh, will the government fall? I mean, I, it's hard to see how long they can last when they don't really have the power to negotiate mm. and whether the very thin uh, working majority they have will fray. So it's very, very hard for her to uh, you know, really come to a deal here. And yet the clock is ticking. Yes. We had this ECB forum a couple of weeks back in, in Central Portugal, and you had a number of central bankers talking about uh, working together, collaborate, not collaboration, cooperation, I suppose you could say, uh, among them. What did you make of, of what came out of that meeting uh, in Sintra? Well, obviously, you know, the most striking thing was what Mario Draghi said the markets uh, paid attention to. But uh, there, there is a lot of uh, exchange of ideas across central banks. They're all seeing the same thing. Mm -hmm. And the biggest thing in the world over the last five or ten years has been the steady drop in the inflation-adjusted interest rate for everybody. They weren't expecting it. It was it's, it's a couple percent lower than it was, you know, at the start of the financial crisis, and it's lasted. And I don't know if it will stay, but obviously, if you're talking about raising interest rates, but the, you know, the rate of interest that kind of clears the market when you adjust for inflation hasn't been rising, they won't. So I, I think that's going to, as that continues to get pushed out the day of quote-unquote normalization mm -hmm. of interest rates, they're all going slow. They're all seeing the same thing. Hey, interest rates were a lot higher uh, 10 years ago, but where are they going now? There was a, a moment of misinterpretation, I suppose you could call it, during that, that forum. The, the market seemed to misunderstand what uh, Mario Draghi intended to, to say. How, how, uh, how big an issue still is communication by central bankers as we push ahead here to a news conference from the, uh, the president of the ECB later this morning. Uh, are you satisfied with the degree to which central bankers are communicating their policy positions? Well, they each have different challenges. So in the case of Mario Draghi, the European Central Bank is both fiscal policy yes. and monetary policy for the Eurozone, and yet he has to couch it in this language about inflation. The quantitative easing and the slowing of quantitative easing, it's not about inflation. Mm -hmm. It's about propping up bonds in Portugal, Italy, and the rest of Europe. And if the Eurozone can't step in to do something, maybe the new French president will be able to mm -hmm. catalyze something. It's a problem. In the U.S., actually, I think the interesting problem is it does matter what people think you're going to do two years from now, five years from now. But the Fed doesn't even know what its constitution is mm -hmm. going to be two years, five years mm -hmm. from now. We have this, uh, you know, a disruptive president, the Federal Reserve, you know, puts on a brave face, nothing's going to change. Whoever he appoints, he'll just get, you know, institutionalized into the Fed way of doing things. But the President Trump has an yeah. enormous power to appoint people. Mm. Ken Rogoff with us with Harvard University. Good morning, everyone. Green on the screen, futures up one, Dow futures up 11. As David mentions, Mr. Draghi will have a sporting morning. We'll, of course, have his uh, important press conference and Q&A, always a, a raft of headlines out uh, with Mr. Draghi. I want to get one monetary question in before we talk about and celebrate uh, my book of the year, The Curse of Cash, uh, from uh, last year. In Opsfeld Rogoff, you spend a lot of mathy moments on this strange word, expectations. Are expectations different today 
because of technology, because of speed of news, speed of transfer, maybe because of a smarter household, a smarter consumer. Are expectations different now than Obsfeld Rogoff of another time and place? Well, sort of expectations of what? I think they were pretty sophisticated for a long time, but inflation's become something of a mystery. I think what's going on with inflation is the world's adjusting to this ever-lowering share of labor that's putting downward pressure on wages. And if wages aren't going up, uh, there's not a lot of pressure on firms' prices. That may turn around at some point, but it hasn't. And that's that's mystified. How do you respond to Professor Roach of Yale University, Steve Roach, the great of invented Morgan Stanley Economics, who says part of that inflation is asset inflation? Should we have a central bank that looks not only at inflation and jobs, but also at asset dynamics? Well, so that's an age-old question. Ben Bernanke addressed this a lot. He had a very decisive answer of no, and that's the classic central bank answers. We care about asset price inflation to the extent if stock prices go up and people spend more money, it puts upward pressure on output inflation. But we don't care about the stock prices themselves because we don't know what they should be. But in the case of housing and debt-fueled housing, it's a little trickier because housing is often at the center of financial crisis. Canada recently raised its interest rate pointing at housing. Um, You've got the safe box here with the cash in it on the cover of the new curse (laughs) of cash. Have the death threats slowed down? Uh, Yeah, they've slowed down a little bit, although I just got one the other day. Oh, you just got one the other day. Do you have security up at Harvard like the president has two blocks over from us? I I have had some of uh, the people across the hall from me wonder if they should move their office (laughs) in case somebody walks into their office by mistake and asks if they're me. But uh, no, I think uh, in the the new uh, paperback that I put out, uh, first of all, I extended the title to make it clear that my policy is not getting rid of cash, which it says on page one of page two, but my policy is more about- Oh, come uh, on, Ken, cut to the chase. Every building contractor hates your guts because they (laughs) love being paid under the table in cash. No, the construction industry is a big user of cash worldwide. There are lots of studies. I mean, I don't mean to pick on America. contractors have it in their safe. uh, I mean, David, you're doing something over in Brooklyn on the manse. (laughs) Are you paying in cash? (laughs) (laughs) That's the rule of the neighborhood. And seriously, you're going to India. No, uh, by the way, I, I don't have- have a moral thing about this. I mean, I use cash. Uh, people my generation, I'm 64, use cash. I use cash. But I think the question is scale. Uh, you know, how ordinary people use cash for whatever reason. I, I don't have a moral thing about this. But we're si- a lot of the cash is used in big dealings and huge tax Yeah, like Kale Gardens on of top crime. of his roof in Brooklyn. Or the sweet green over here where I can't <clears throat> use cash you know. to buy a salad, Tom. Well, well, well that's, that's a different matter. <laughs> <laughs> Uh, as David uh, mentioned here, you're off to India. What will be your message to Indian financial leaders about their experiment with the curse of cash quickly, unfortunately? Well, I, th- I think whenever you're uh, speaking to the Indian audience, it's they, they move very slowly, actually, normally. Normally, yeah. they're moving in the right direction, but very slowly, yeah. and you, you – 
say, well, if you moved a little faster, it would be even better. Okay, in the case of this one, they moved way too fast. David Gurren, Tom Keen with Ken Rogoff of Harvard University in celebration of my book of the year last year, The Curse of Cash, out in paperback with an important update on India. Professor, I cut you off at our last uh, section on India. What can the United States, what can Europe learn about trying to deal with corruption and cash within the uh, new Indian experiment? Well, I think India's innovated in a lot of ways to try to uh, have financial inclusion. Um, something I don't think we could do in the United States, although it probably happens someday, is they have uh, taken biometric data for now over 1.1 billion Indians, and they're moving to do the rest. And you get basically a free debit account when you get to do that. It's made financial inclusion uh, very easy. And uh, they've also done things like make it impossible to pay certain kinds of license fees in cash. You have to pay online. That's a big source of corruption. They haven't done that with houses. Apartments and houses routinely trade for cash in India. It's an enormous source of corruption. But they're trying to approach these things. There's a, a many, many dimensions. Yeah. I think the demonetization, which as Modi called it, was very theatric and maybe highlighted mm. these things. I think he he did it way too fast. I say you should take five to seven years. He did it in a few hours. I, I don't think they did it the right way. I think that was counterproductive. But the larger picture, right. they've done a lot of good things. Ken, we are 10 years on from a financial crisis. You were exceptionally generous with your time with Bloomberg on the economy and Bloomberg surveillance in the heat of 2007 and 2008. Of course, you did your iconic book with Carmen Reinhardt, uh, This Time is Different. Where this time is different down 10 years, what have you learned? Well, I mean, first, I, I, I want to say when academics study these things, they do it forever. Uh, ben Bernanke wrote a path-breaking paper reinterpreting the Great Depression in a way we still think is important 50 years after it happened. Barry Eichengreen's book on the gold standard, 10 years after that. So there's constant rethinking of this. Uh, and But I, I, I think it's still pretty robust, the results that Reinhardt and I got from This Time is Different, which shows that the run-up to a financial crisis uh, has pretty similar characteristics across time, across countries, and it's never that painless. That is debated. There are uh, papers by Michael David and Christina Romer, who say, well, depends on what you call a financial crisis. I think we're focusing on deep systemic ones that have a big effect on the economy as opposed to more minor ones. Did we do okay? Did the United States, a la Schumpeter of Harvard, did we clear our markets better than others? Oh, I think the United States uh, did very well not to have a Great Depression. And they, you know, certainly behaved very courageously and remarkably. Ben Bernanke is, of course, widely celebrated. President Obama, uh, you know, his actions uh, helped a lot. But George Bush also was very courageous going on with a $450 billion stimulus right, you know, pretty quickly, contrary to like what all his beliefs and statements were. So they were very flexible. There's a lot of uh, sort of Monday morning quarterbacking about what they should have done better. I think everyone agrees they should have done more infrastructure. They should have uh, kept uh, stimulus going longer. But I think people forget that the forecasts that were coming out from the Fed, from Wall Street, from everyone, were that 
the Reinhard Rogoff was not going to happen. It was going to be much faster. And the White House and the Congress were looking at this and saying, well, why are we doing crazy things if things are going to get better? And as aggressive as monetary policy was, I think it could have been more aggressive. I think they were a little bit too concerned with maintaining an inflation not going up and not looking you know, at really what the core problem was. Very quickly, you have about 30 seconds left. I wonder just sort of how your expectations for growth or your sense of where the U.S. economy uh, is going has changed in light of the disruptiveness. I think that was the word you used of, of, of this president. Uh, how have you reevaluated where you think things are headed? Well, I, I think for the moment, it's just growth deferred and not reversed. Uh, I think the U.S. economy is fundamentally very strong. And if the president, the Senate, uh, and uh, president and Congress don't end up doing much, it could be a lot worse. Um, so I do think productivity will start to improve. I do think investment will start to come back. We've gone on this long trend, but at least part of that's the aftermath of the financial crisis. There's this view of Robert Gordon, we're not inventing anything anymore. Uh, I, I, no. I think that'll look ridiculous okay. in 10 years. Ken, congratulations. My book of the year last year, The Curse of Cash, still most current, out in paperback. Can't say enough about it. The Curse of Cash. This is Bloomberg. Brought to you by Bank of America, Merrill Lynch. With virtual reality, virtually everything will change. Discover opportunities in a transforming world. B of slash VR. Merrill Lynch, Pierce, Fenner & Smith, Incorporated. We've had a wonderful week on housing. Jonathan Miller joined us, mm -hmm. who is truly the smartest guy on per square foot uh, in the major cities. Uh, Doug Duncan joined in us in studios. In, in his Lucchese. <laughs> uh, uh, from Fannie Mae. And now the academic authority with the late Carl Case of Wellesley yes. and Harvard, Robert Schiller, the laureate from Yale on housing. Uh, Bob Schiller, why isn't there affordable housing across much of California? Well, uh, I would say restrictions on supply. There's two kinds of restrictions. There's natural restrictions, uh, the mountains, the ocean that limits uh, building. But then there's other restrictions which are, are uh, human-created, uh, and people are, un are resistant to new construction. Uh, it's still possible in California, but people don't. People existing homeowners don't want it. What did what determines where there is affordable housing? Is it geographies you've just mentioned, the the, the mountains, the oceans, etc., or or is it something more than that? When you look at the world and you look at where you can find affordable housing in major cities. Yeah, there's evidence that uh, geography matters. So part of it is, you know, San Francisco is on a on a sort of peninsula around the bay uh, that limits uh, uh, limits construction, and cities like that do have higher prices. That's a fact of life. Uh, then the question is, uh, what other factors? Well, the other factors are people preserving neighborhoods, and also there's a kind of a coordination problem. How can we? Well, we, people like urban living. The problem is there isn't enough of it. And how can we start new city centers? That's that's a difficult a difficult thing to do. 
It does happen eventually, well, let's, but with a long lag. Let, let's, let's chew on that or cogitate on it there. How, how do you begin to do that? As you think about that, as, as we hear stories of uh, companies moving to, to, to new cities, new towns, and, and, and intending to grow, what, what kickstarts that kind of growth? It does take a long time, as you say, but what are the, the catalysts that make it work? Well, I think it has something to do with uh, civic spirit, with people who, who think about what to, what to do with our city, people who plan, uh, and uh, a general atmosphere of uh, cooperation. So, for example, Stamford, Connecticut. If you go back 50 to 100 years, it was an industrial town. Uh, the industry started moving out. We were losing jobs to the foreign countries. Uh, but they decided that this is a city which is uh, within an hour's commute of New York City on the rail line. So they were lucky. They were on the rail line, and they decided to try to court uh, corporate headquarters and get them out of, out of the city where it's, it's more, uh, more land. <laughs> Prices are lower. And they transformed Stanford into a... Uh, into a uh, uh, like a, a second downtown yeah. for New York. What would you propose to allow for upper middle class? Forget about middle class or lower middle class. Upper middle class mortal housing, where the rich people don't want that in their backyard or in the backyard next to their backyard. How do we? How do we just get? You know, within the New York metaphor, forget about $3 million properties. How do we get more non-affordable, affordable $800,000 properties? can't believe I'm saying oh, that. 800000 <laughs> Yeah, that's cheap. Uh, well, not for all of us. but um, Yeah, I, I think that when you talk about that level, you're talking about people who uh, might – nice area – really nice – you mean more than 800000 uh, they might resist having the riffraff <laughs> come in. Well, that's a societal issue. They don't want the riffraff. I know. What can policy do about that? Well, I think that we have to appeal to people's... Uh, uh, this is what we call the American dream, that uh, we respect people for what they are and what they make yeah. themselves. We're not all about making money. Uh, and uh, your the value of your house isn't everything, and we, we uh, this is also part of the American dream. It's tolerance of other people. It, it's a, other kinds of people, and th- this yeah. is really the, uh, the the success story of this country. Yeah. We have to appeal to that and to help people remember that. Yeah, two bedroom, two bath, thirteen hundred square feet down the street from the Laureate Schiller in New Haven, Connecticut, <laughs> within reach of Joe's Pizza and two other good pizza <laughs> parlors. David Gura, $410,000. Wow, all right, all right. There's, not, there's nothing like that within three zip codes of where we're sitting. Very true. Uh, Professor Schiller, you, you, you write about inequality and inequality of income, and then you write about inequality of housing. Does one lead the, the other? In other words, when you look at what's the biggest detriment to uh, somebody having economic mobility, how big a role is, is inequality of, of housing? Yeah, well, inequality of, in terms of housing exacerbates the problem of other forms of inequality. The, the, the problem is that when you have a, a, a city developing uh, with limited land, it, it's going to force people out, right? I mean, the, the, the higher bidders for the land in that city, uh, maybe to, build a, to tear down a house and build something, 
they they are eventually have a, a effect of pushing the others out. So you might have lived in a neighborhood all your life. You have a sense of identity with this neighborhood and neighbors, and you know where the jobs are, or you used to know where they are. Uh, and now all that changes, and you you kind of uh, are pushed out by your inability to afford housing. And that uh, that also is an inability to to have opportunities. You're no longer where the action is. You moved out to some area with other low-income people, and you're just too far away to make contact. So that that worsens inequality because it harms opportunity. It harms people's ability to develop themselves into something better. Well, let's do this. We are fortunate. We have Robert Schiller with us of Yale University, and... He is a Nobel laureate. The, the laureate of Newport Beach, Bill Gross, is just published for Janice Henderson. And Bill Gross is writing about the world of Robert Schiller, which is our orthodox monetary policy and some of our newer concepts. So let's come back with Bob Schiller and talk about the Fed and not so much, you know, the parlor game. Are we going to raise rates in December? Yes, no, maybe, whatever. But let's come back and talk to Bob Schiller about what the new orthodoxy should be for our economics. This 10 years on in the financial crisis. And again, Bill Gross just publishing on uh, on uh, the linkage here of finance and investment into uh, uh, Schiller economics. Professor Schiller with us from Yale, the laureate of Yale University. Uh, Professor Schiller, Professor Gross of Janice Henderson publishes on our orthodox economics are we beyond the efficacy of the Taylor Rule, the efficacy of the Phillips Curve? Have we moved on to a new economics from what Medigliani taught you at MIT a few years ago? Oh, that was more than a few years ago. <laughs> Back then, uh, under Franco Modigliani, uh, we thought we had the whole economy reduced to a computer simulation You did, model. yeah. That worked <laughs> out. <laughs> well... Um, unfortunately, that model is not capable of predicting any recessions before they start to happen. This is a fundamental problem. The, the, even the, the causes, the causes of the secular stagnation, are still not. I mean, maybe we have some hints why it's happening, but we don't know. We don't right. have a. Uh, it's like we have a uh, the secular stagnation disease which is more uh, effective in Europe than in the U.S. But it's there, and we don't understand it. We don't know whether it's a virus or a bacteria or, or a carcinoma. It's just not uh, right. not understood. How and that po- makes, it, makes it difficult for Draghi yeah. and others. How political is the Federal Reserve right now? Hmm. Well, this is... I don't know if I'm the right person to answer that. It's a, You're it's a time. <laughs> it's a time when we are the most polarized society I've seen in my lifetime, and uh, maybe uh, the most polarized since uh, 1860 or, or 1865. Uh, and so, uh, you know, the, the the job of a Fed chairman shouldn't be that uh, politicized, but. Unfortunately, uh, it, it's, it's a time just of tensions and anxieties and, uh, uh, and a time of mistrust. 
So it, it puts anybody in a position like that. I, I sympathize with Janet Yellen. Um, what she's doing is very sensible, but I can see that uh, uh, it's open to criticism. Let me rip up the script here in the last couple minutes we have with you. We had, uh, of course, Ken Rodegoff on the show a few minutes ago, and we were asking him uh, during a break just about uh, academic life in Cambridge these days, talking about what he's teaching, how much he's teaching. You had a, a lecture that you delivered when you were uh, president of the uh, of the American Economic Association on the importance of, of humanities, and I know that's been excerpted right. uh, by the Booth School recently. Give us a, a precis of that. Give, give us a, your, your argument here that we should be investing more in stressing the importance of humanities uh, complementing yeah. the study of economics. Well, economics, you know, in any academic field, there's specialization, and economics has has uh, proven itself to be valuable in its present form. But I think that we've lost something as well when we uh, when we assume that people are strictly rational, that they have well-defined preferences, and are uh, responding only to information. So the people in the other departments I, that I normally wouldn't have any uh, interaction with, humanities people, have a different view of human nature. You know, it's not like we have a utility function and we know what we want. We don't know what we want, and we're affected by uh, humans and by stories. So uh, my presidential address at the AEA was called Narrative Economics. It's because I think that... Uh, you know, it's not as if people have clear expectations. What will the interest rate be next year? What will the FOMC do next? It's not what, not the way most people think. Uh, and they, they, they're, they're kind of a story. Or they want to know, what is the story of my life? And, and what's going on now as, mm-hmm. in a way that has some emotional now, significance? Bob Schiller, thank you so much. Years back, Tom, I was in New Orleans on a reporting trip, and we parked by the old charity hospital, which had been boarded up, and made our way to the new University Medical Center, which is a beautiful new building several blocks away from where that old hospital uh, stands. And I got a tour of the new space from the chief medical officer there, a guy named Dr. Peter Tiblou, if I remember the name correctly. And it really was an amazing space decorated with Chihuly sculptures and a really radical sense of how you uh, can take care of a lot of patients, particularly patients dealing with trauma, an emergency room that had a lot of pods, I think, as he described them, a very innovative space. Uh, and I know that somebody who is partially responsible for the creation, the building of that structure, is the mayor of the city of New Orleans, Mitch Landrieu, who joins us now on our phone lines. Mayor Landrieu has been uh, vociferous, weighing in a lot about the health care debate here nationally. And I wonder, Mayor, if I could start by asking you what we could learn about health care uh, from how it's played out here in recent years in the city of New Orleans. Well, th- first of all, thank you for recognizing that hospital is beautiful. That gentleman's name is Dr. Peter W., who's one of the great heroes. He was on the ground after Katrina, saving a lot of people, and he's a great guy uh, that runs the, the trauma center and the emergency medical unit. You know, what's interesting is, is this, is this um, issue across the country of affordable care just played out in Louisiana. You know, Katrina hit, and when we started rebuilding our health care delivery system, one of the things we had learned from our failures earlier on is that you can't provide preventative care and acute care in emergency room hospitals or public hospitals that have no money that eventually break the state and make people less healthy. So one of the things we knew was we had to get on the front end of it, and we, and we created primary care clinics in the metropolitan area of New Orleans where people who didn't have access to health care before now have access to preventative care. 
what used to happen was for working folks, they used to have to go to the emergency room and sit there to get the earache of the kids taken care of, get triage with the gunshot victims, stay there for 13 hours, get fired, and it was catastrophic. And so uh, the important part was to make sure that you got on the front end and the back end, you kept the cost down, you spread the risk. And unfortunately, what's happened in Washington is they seem to be stuck on, on making the same mistake, which is not coming up with a bipartisan approach that is broad-based that the country supports. There is an answer to this very difficult question. And so I think on behalf of the U.S. Conference of Mayors, what we're asking is for Leader McConnell to step back for a minute, to go ahead and create a bipartisan working group, get some smart yeah. mayors, bipartisan groups, some governors, and then let's see if we can hammer this thing out and get it right. Mitch, you kill it to your senator, the doctor, Dr. Cassidy. And in paragraph six of your latest missile uh, to missive to Washington, you go into the economics of the Ninth Ward of your new Louisiana, your New Orleans, rather. The Ninth Ward is the people that nobody's talking about in this debate. What does it mean for the people in the trenches at the Baptist Community Health Services Center of the Ninth Ward of New Orleans? Hannah Pounds, Edward Lynn, the nurse Robert Jemison, they're in the trenches of our health care system. What do, what, do the, what do they need from the politicians in the fancy suits? Well, first, first, that's a great question. First of all, I want to thank Senator Cassidy because he's really been trying hard, unlike some other senators, to find some common ground. Hadn't been able to do it yet, but at least he has an open mind. One of the things that folks in Washington miss is what their words mean when they hit the ground in a specific spot in an American city, in a real neighborhood, affecting a real person. So what you basically talked about was a clinic in the Lower Ninth Ward, and of course we have a bunch of these where these individuals are not going to be able to get the kind of care that they need, which in some instances is going to cost them their job, it's going to cost them to lose their home, or they're going to get sick, and if they don't have the kind of care that they need, they could potentially die. So this isn't a political fight for people on the ground. This is a life-or-death decision about how they're going to have a good quality of life. And, you know, the president said when he ran, I want better health care for more Americans for lower cost. That's what he said the goal was. And I don't think we're moving there right now. We're stuck in this. Are the Republicans going to present a bill? Are the Democrats going to do it? What the mayors are saying is, look, get rid of all that that ideologically bent talk, and let's get down to tactics of how we're going to make sure that America can be strong by being healthy. And the process that's being used in Washington is not getting us there. So now Senator McConnell is, is in a position of saying, well, let's try to go ahead and go back to the original House bill, which is going to make sure that 32 million Americans lose health care. And if we don't do that, you know, let's go back to someplace that's even worse than that. I think we've got to scrap it, start over again, and find the answers to the things in the Affordable Care Act that are broken. And every Democrat in America that's serving knows that there are issues with the Affordable Care Act, notwithstanding the fact that we have used that particular law to make sure other people are more healthy. So it's not perfect. It needs to be fixed. Let's figure out how to fix it. We can get this done. I was talking with uh, John Hickenlooper, the governor of Colorado, last week, and, and we were we were having a conversation about the role that states are taking on here now. The the federal government might be taking a, a, a more backseat role. The governors see that as an opportunity to get together and do more on the issues of policy themselves. Do you feel that same way when it comes to the group of mayors that you're heading up now? Do mayors feel like they have a, a greater responsibility here to craft and, and, and put forward policy? Oh, well, well, not only do we have a responsibility, we're the ones that actually do the work. You know, when you get down on the ground, mayors are like the emergency room physicians in a war zone. We're the guys that run the emergency medical services. So you were talking about Peter W.'s hospital. 
essentially that's our, our trauma center. When something bad happens in the in the city, it's it's our vehicles that are going to pick the folks up, bring them to the emergency room. All of our first responders are engaged in it, so we're the ones that are actually doing the work. And we don't think that Congress ought to be passing any major piece of legislation without the mayors of the major American cities and the small cities in partnership with the governors, giving them our view about what their words mean when they actually hit the ground. See, this is a, We don't govern in theory. We don't govern in philosophy. We govern in real time and in reality. And we don't really yeah. have a whole lot of time for ideologically bent debates. And so that's why it's important for us to be on the table so we can tell our senators exactly what yeah. it is that they're talking about means when it hits the streets. You got to check your blood pressure. Mayor, yeah. how many how many <laughs> nights a week do you eat at Charlie's Steakhouse? Oh, <laughs> Charlie's Steakhouse is great. The onion ring's a killer. Don't I, tell my doctor I said that. <laughs> <laughs> Mayor they Landry. have fruit in the onion ring. Oh, <laughs> yeah, please. Please. <laughs> We're going to leave it there. I love that. <laughs> Mayor Mitch Landry, the, uh, the president of the Conference of Mayors, joining us here on our phone lines. Thanks for listening to the Bloomberg Surveillance Podcast. Subscribe and listen to interviews on Apple Podcasts, SoundCloud, or whichever podcast platform you prefer. I'm on Twitter at Tom Keen. David Gura is at David Gura. Before the podcast, you can always catch us worldwide on Bloomberg Radio. Brought to you by Bank of America, Merrill Lynch. With virtual reality, virtually everything will change. Discover opportunities in a transforming world. B of AML.com slash VR. Merrill Lynch, Pierce, Fenner & Smith, Incorporated.